As the rector of St Bride's Church, Fleet Street, I warmly welcome you to this service, which is brought to you while our doors are closed due to the coronavirus outbreak. It has been collated from our archive of live choral music, together with readings, prayers and a sermon recorded for this service. I shall be offering this act of worship on your behalf, so please join your prayers with mine. May the light and hope of Christ be with us all as our worship begins. Is it nothing to you, all you who pass by? Look and see if there is any sorrow like my sorrow. Welcome to St Bride's Fleet Street on this Good Friday afternoon as we spend an hour at the cross. During this service, we shall reflect on the passion of our Lord Jesus Christ and the power of his saving death through words music and prayer. We shall be hearing the Passion narrative from St Matthew's Gospel, read in three sections, starting at the beginning of chapter 27. After each biblical reading, there will be a reflection focusing upon one of the central characters in the story, Judas, Pilate, and Jesus himself. You may wish to build in for yourself some times of quiet in or around this act of worship for your own silent prayer and meditation. We begin now with an opening prayer. Let us pray. O God, our Father, all holy, all loving, who gave your only Son for the salvation of us all. 
Look mercifully upon us, your servants, as we bow in penitence before his cross. Give us faith to behold him in the mystery of his passion and to enter into the fellowship of his suffering. Let his wounds be our healing, his death our life, his shame our glory, that we may also partake of the victory of his resurrection to the honour of your name. Amen.
reading from the Passion of our Lord and Saviour Jesus Christ, according to St Matthew. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people conferred together against Jesus in order to bring about his death. They bound him, led him away, and handed him over to Pilate, the governor. When Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he repented and brought back the thirty pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. He said, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. But they said, What is that to us? See to it yourself. Throwing down the pieces of silver in the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since they are blood money. After conferring together, they used them to buy the potter's field as a place to bury foreigners. For this reason, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of the one on whom a price had been set, on whom some of the people of Israel had set a price, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord commanded me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, You say so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and elders, he did not answer. Then Pilate said to him, Do you not hear how many accusations they make against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Judas, I was once asked the question, out of all the individuals portrayed in the Bible, who was it that I regarded as the most sympathetic character? My immediate answer, which I gave almost without thinking about it, startled my questioner and, if I'm honest, even took me slightly by surprise because I heard myself answering, Judas. It is so easy to hate and despise Judas, the man whose very name has become synonymous with the worst kind of treachery and betrayal. He was, after all, a member of Jesus's privileged inner circle who not only betrayed his Lord, and set in motion the events that led to his torture and death, but who did it for money. It is easy to lose sight of the fact that Judas is in large part the victim of the tradition that has developed around him, because if you read the Gospel accounts in the chronological order in which they were actually written, you can observe the way in which both his motives and his personality are progressively blackened as that tradition develops. Because in the earliest version, which is in St Mark's Gospel, one is left with the distinct impression that Judas may well have been nothing worse than a disillusioned idealist who suddenly had terrible doubts about whether Jesus really was who he claimed to be, an appalling moment of realization triggered when he observed Jesus allowing himself to be anointed with precious ointment that, as he pointed out, could have been sold and given to the poor. Was this man, Jesus, in reality a fraud, a self-seeking egotist, had his followers been mistaken after all? 
One can readily see how someone who was suddenly consumed by that terrible fear might well have turned against the one whom he had followed and turn against him with a vengeance. It is only in later gospel accounts that Judas comes to be portrayed as an out-and-out cad, a thief who had his hand in the till. And only in St Matthew's Gospel do we find reference to the 30 pieces of silver that he, was, that he was paid for his betrayal. One of the distinctive characteristics of Matthew's Gospel is that he presents the story of Jesus expressly as the fulfilment of Old Testament prophecy. The 30 pieces of silver is a motif drawn from the prophet Jeremiah, which Matthew has taken up and incorporated in his retelling of the Passion narrative. But it is also in Matthew that we see the distraught, utterly repentant Judas, who is suddenly faced with the true consequences of what he has done. His act of betrayal has set in motion a chain of events that will inevitably lead to, to the death not merely of an innocent man, but of a man to whom Judas had been a close and trusted friend. There can be few more heart-rending depictions of human despair and desolation than we see in Judas, because Judas knows that he is the victim of his own misguided behaviour, his own momentary lapse of judgment, his own folly. He is horrified and ashamed by what he has done and what he cannot now undo. Events have been set in motion that he can do absolutely nothing to halt. On Good Friday, we witness more than one terrible death. Centre stage, of course, is the crucifixion of Jesus, and alongside him are the criminals who die with him. But let us never forget Judas, whose death is terrible precisely because it is self-inflicted. He cannot face the prospect of seeing the terrible consequences of his own actions. He literally cannot live with himself. We should weep for Judas. We should weep for him, for all those times when we too have acted foolishly or selfishly or precipitately, when our desire to see others punished or suffer in some way for hurting us or misunderstanding us or letting us down has caused us to act inappropriately. For those times when our own actions have set in motion events with consequences that we never intended, we should weep for him because the problem with Judas is that he is quite simply all too human. And the tragedy of Judas is that for him, there is no happy ending. Let us pray. Almighty Father, look with mercy upon this, your family, for which our Lord Jesus Christ was content to be betrayed and given up into the hands of the wicked and to suffer death upon the cross, who is alive and reigns with you and the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.
Now at the festival, the governor was accustomed to release a prisoner for the crowd, anyone whom they wanted. At that time, they had a notorious prisoner called Jesus Barabbas. So after they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Jesus Barabbas or Jesus who is called the Messiah? For he realized that it was out of jealousy that they had handed him over. While he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that innocent man, for today I have suffered a great deal because of a dream about him. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowds to ask for Barabbas and to have Jesus killed. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what should I do with Jesus, who is called the Messiah? All of them said, Let him be crucified. Then he asked, Why, what evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he could do nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took some water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. Then the people as a whole answered, His blood be on us and on our children. So he released Barabbas for them. And after flogging Jesus, he handed him over to be crucified. Pilate. In the story of the trial and crucifixion of Jesus, the role played by the Roman governor, Pontius Pilate, is a curious one. We know, as a matter of historical fact, that he was indeed the governor of the Roman province of Judea at the time of Jesus' death. We know also that Jesus was put to death by Romans in Roman fashion. Crucifixion, a singularly barbaric form of execution designed to dehumanize its victims and shock its onlookers, characterized Roman law and order at its most brutal. Pilate did indeed hold the power of life and death over Jesus, as all the Gospels testify. And yet, a recurrent feature of the Gospel accounts is Pilate's increasing conviction that the man, Jesus, was not only innocent, but that, bizarrely, he might actually be the very thing that his accusers are charging him with falsely claiming to be. Hence, in our reading from Matthew, Pilate first gives the crowd the opportunity to release Jesus because, we are told, he realized that it was simple jealousy that had caused them to hand Jesus over to him. But the crowd demands the release of the notorious Barabbas instead. Then, in a strange little incident found only in Matthew, Pilate's wife, as the result of a disturbing dream, warns her husband, have nothing to do with that innocent man, having been warned of this in a dream. Pilate asks the crowd, what they wish him to do with Jesus. And they roar, crucify him. Again, Pilate makes it clear that he regards Jesus as innocent and demands to know what evil he has done. But the crowd merely howls for his death the more. And then, in a symbolic gesture that has come into our language as the ultimate metaphor for disassociation, Pilate washes his hands, saying, in effect, 
Do what you want. It is nothing to do with me. But nevertheless, he still gives the crowd what they want. He releases Barabbas. He flogs Jesus. And he then hands him over to be crucified. Pilate knows full well that Jesus is innocent. Pilate knows that he is handing an innocent man over to his death. Pilate knows that what he is doing is wrong, which is why he does his very best to shrug off any responsibility for what is about to unfold. A stronger man than Pilate, a better man than Pilate, would perhaps never have negotiated with the mob in the first place, would never have colluded with them, giving them what they want, in defiance of what true justice demands. But it would seem that Pilate was not a strong man. Rather, he acts out of fear, fear of the riot that might happen if he does not give in to them, fear of what the crowd might do if they do not get their way, fear of what would happen to him if he was perceived to be failing in his duty to Rome. So perhaps we should weep for Pilate too. We should weep for him, for all those times when we too have failed to stand up for what we know is right, for those times when we too have washed our hands of involvement in a situation where we could have done more, when we too have colluded with injustice through our unwillingness to withstand it. Because the terrible truth is that there is something of Pilate in each of us.
My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning? My God, I cry to you by day, but you do not answer, and by night also I take no rest. But you continue holy, you that are the praise of Israel, in you our fathers trusted, they trusted and you delivered them. To you they cried and were saved, they put their trust in you and were not confounded. But as for me, I am a worm and no man, the scorn of men and despised by the people. All they that see me laugh me to scorn. They shoot out their lips at me and wag their heads, saying, He trusted in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him deliver him, if he delights in him. But you are he that took me out of the womb, that brought me to lie at peace on my mother's breast. On you have I been cast since my birth. You are my God, even from my mother's womb. Oh, go not from me, for trouble is at hand, and there is none to help me. Many oxen surround me, fat bulls of Bashan close me in on every side. They gape wide their mouths at me, like lions that roar and rend. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart within my breast is like melting wax. My mouth is dried up like a potsherd, and my tongue cleaves to my gums. My hands and my feet are withered, and you lay me in the dust of death. For many dogs are come about me, and a band of evildoers hems me in. I can count all my bones. They stand staring and gazing upon me. They part my garments among them, and cast lots for my clothing. O Lord, do not stand far off. You are my helper. Hasten to my aid. Deliver my body from the sword, my life from the power of the dogs. O save me from the lion's mouth, and my afflicted soul from the horns of the wild oxen. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from helping me and from the words of my groaning?
Then the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters, and they gathered the whole cohort around him. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him, and after twisting some thorns into a crown, they put it on his head. They put a reed in his right hand and knelt before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews! They spat on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. After mocking him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him. As they went out, they came upon a man from Cyrene named Simon. They compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they had crucified him, they divided his clothes among themselves by casting lots. Then they sat down there and kept watch over him. Over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is the King of the Jews. Then two bandits were crucified with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by derided him, shaking their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and build it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. In the same way, the chief priests also, along with the scribes and elders, were mocking him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down from the cross now, and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he wants to. For he said, I am God's son. The bandits who were crucified with him also taunted him in the same way. From noon on, darkness came over the whole land until three in the afternoon. And about three o'clock, Jesus cried with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of the bystanders heard it, they said, This man is calling for Elijah. At once, one of them ran and got a sponge, filled it with sour wine, put it on a stick, and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, Wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to save him. Then Jesus cried again with a loud voice and breathed his last. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks were split. The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. After his resurrection, they came out of the tombs and entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now when the centurion and those with him who were keeping watch over Jesus saw the earthquake and what took place, they were terrified and said, Truly, this man was the Son of God. Jesus. The passage we have just heard contains what is perhaps the most harrowing moment in the whole of Scripture. In two of the four Gospels, the final words of Jesus on the cross are words of completion. His task is fulfilled. In St. John's Gospel, we hear Jesus declare, it is finished. In St. Luke, into thy hands, O Lord, I commend my spirit. But in St. Matthew's Gospel, as in St. Mark, the last utterance of the crucified Christ is a harrowing cry of utter desolation and hopelessness. And the words are in Aramaic, the language that Jesus spoke, which chillingly testifies to their authenticity. 
my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? To watch the crowd lose their faith in Jesus and turn against him is one thing. To observe the disciples abandoning him to his fate is another. But to see Jesus himself convinced that the God whom he had called Father, Abba, has utterly forsaken him, that is a horror of a quite different order. The cry of dereliction is a cry that has echoed down the centuries of human suffering. It is the cry of the lost and the abandoned, of those who have died in agony. It is the cry of the deserted, the betrayed, the unloved. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is a cry that has a particularly terrible resonance for us now. Crucifixion is an appalling mode of execution because the actual cause of death is usually suffocation. The weight of a human body held fast in that way makes breathing all but impossible unless the victim can use his tortured legs to raise his body up momentarily to take a gasp of breath. That is why soldiers would break the legs of victims when they wanted them to die quickly. It is hard not to think of the thousands and thousands and thousands of people across the globe today who during the course of this service have been fighting for breath and fighting for their lives as a result of the present pandemic and who know the terrible loneliness of that fear and that agony. Christ knows their sufferings just as they know something of his. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Evil has run its course. Death has done its worst. There is a terrible gut-wrenching finality to the cry of despair of Jesus on the cross, which marks the point at which all hope was utterly and irrevocably lost. It is a moment so bleak that creation itself shook with the enormity of it. But there is something else as well. At the heart of all this desolation and abandonment and hopelessness, there is something else, which is the strange and perplexing and bewildering knowledge that this was a destiny that Jesus chose to embrace, that he surrendered himself into the hands of his torturers, and, most perplexingly of all, that in some strange, strange sense, he did it for them. He did it for us. And who are we that for our sakes our Lord should take frail flesh and die? What kind of a love is that? How much love does it take to do such a thing as that? Therein lies the most extraordinary, most wonderful, most astounding truth about Good Friday. That however deep the darkness, 
however pointless the suffering, however hopeless the outcome. In the end, the love was the greater. And all that we can do is to sit at the foot of the cross and wonder. Here might I stay and sing no story so divine. Never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. This is my friend, in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. Let us pray. It was for us, Lord Jesus, that you endured all this, the hatred, the treachery, the scourging, the mockery, the agony and shame and dereliction of the cross. It was for us and for our salvation that you suffered and died. Grant us each a deeper understanding of what you have done for us, that we may live as those who are no longer their own, but have been bought with the price of your lifeblood. O Lamb of God, our most gracious Saviour and Redeemer. Amen. Let us pray for the coming of God's kingdom in the words our Saviour taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, the power, and the glory, for ever and ever. Amen.